Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to rethink about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And Neil Almond. It's be back. And together, we'll try and answer the question how do you solve a problem like differentiation? But first, Chris, what are you reading for? This week, I've been reading a paper called The Multidimensional Knowledge in Text Comprehension Framework by uh, McCarthy and McNamara, 2021, uh, kindly recommended to me by someone online. Uh, It talks about the different aspects of background knowledge um, or the ways that background knowledge in reading can be interpreted um, in order to perhaps allow researchers to pick apart background knowledge by looking at it in different ways, looking at the um, amount, accuracy, specificity, and coherence of that knowledge. So that when people do research into the way that background knowledge um, impacts comprehension, they can start to tease apart exactly how this works. Now, I don't bring this up necessarily because it's a paper I think other people will immediately find interesting. It's more a strategic thing. I found, I was recommended this paper and I couldn't find it online. And this is something that I've not done before. I just decided to contact the one of the researchers directly via email. And they were really kind to say, oh yeah, it's available um, in this particular place. Go here and you should be able to download it. If you are interested in a paper and you don't think that you um, can find it online anywhere, see if you can find the name of one of the researchers and email them. It's, uh, they seem to be very nice people. So uh, try that. What about you, Neil? Well, what are you reading for? Uh, not reading anything, but listening. So I found a great podcast. It was from, I found it when I went to the Sounds Right Symposium, which was a good couple of weeks ago now. And I went to one about um, etymology and she recommended a podcast called the History of English podcast by Kevin Stroud. And what he effectively does is that he traces the English language back through to its Indo-European origin whilst on the way explaining how these languages diverted. So from going from this kind of prototype uh, European, Indo-European language to how then that um, standard developed, then how Latin developed and how um, from there we had our kind of how English comes from this uh, Germanic uh, language, but it kind of just traces how all of these little nuances happen. So how it is that we went from um, the letter C um, being a, but also a S, sound and how would that kind of all happened and yeah it's really fascinating there are 160 episodes and I'm only about five in right now but honestly it's seriously fascinating stuff so if you um, have listened to some of um, Chris's stuff before about um, reading and on language it's definitely uh, an interesting uh, next step on from all of that so really recommend the history of English podcast with them Dr. Kevin Stroud. And the one thing that I really love about it is he goes through um, old English, middle English, and obviously like modern English. Um, but this chap can actually read old English as well. So sometimes he'll say, you know, this word derives from um, whatever it might be. Um, and he'll read, you know, long, thick passages in the original old English. So he reads part of Beowulf in old English, part of it in its uh, a, a middle English interpretation, and then kind of you might do it 
with year five or year six Beowulf and how you might read it then in the modern English. And so it's kind of interesting how you can kind of hear these subtleties, the differences, but also some of the similarities. So you can kind of, it's always good fun to hear knit, you know, knight being read as knits and kind of how that all transfers then into our spelling and orthography. And it's all, yeah, terribly interesting stuff. Kieran, what are you reading for? So I'm also listening this week, and um, I think it's just been such a busy time. And the stuff I've had to read for work isn't necessarily stuff that lends itself to the podcast format. So my recommendation is the Fall of Civilizations podcast, and in particular, the episode on the Byzantine Empire. I mean, it's about 200 minutes long. You know, these are not short podcasts, but over the course of a week, you know, I think you were the first person to recommend this to me, Neil. You can get really under the skin of some of the you know the greatest civilizations ever to have existed and sort of as the title suggests what their downfall was and how that has shaped the world we're in now so yeah it's really interesting and um, something that we can sort of visit in small chunks you know i wouldn't do i wouldn't do 200 minutes in one go no and what i love about those is you hear a lot um on edgy Twitter, wherever it is about the importance of narrative and the way that the um, the podcaster creates those narratives straight away is yeah really gripping, really useful. I think, you know, if you wanted to think about how can I include some narrative in my history teaching, listening to a few of those is a really, really great um, starting point. And yeah, I recommend all of those, um, perhaps unintentionally, quite a few of them link to the national curriculum as well in terms of what um, primary school teachers uh, are expected to cover. So I know for sure there's um, Romans are there. I know um, I think that as as technical Incas are there as well. The Maya, sorry, and um, yeah, just loads and loads of really really interesting uh, tidbits there. So great little subject knowledge booster as well if teachers are looking for that. Yeah, it's it's superb. So this week the focus of the episode is differentiation. I think before we start anything else, we need to define differentiation, which could take a while. Chris, I'm going to start with you. What does differentiation mean to you? How do you interpret it? My interpretation of it is actually relatively simple. It's any teaching that uh, is tailored to meet the different needs of learners. Now, this can come in a variety of forms, of course, though commonly when you engage with the discourse on differentiation, it usually comes back to thinking of task-based differentiation, which I'm sure is something we'll come back to. But it isn't only necessarily task-based differentiation. Anything I've seen on the subject tends to break it down into different sections. And I think the one I've seen that's been most helpful is the description of differences in content, process, product, or environment, and the changes that a teacher can make to those in order to support individual learners. Thinking back to my own practice, I think of the different practical things that I would that would I, I would do or I'd consider at least when I was preparing learning in terms of differentiation. So I think about I think differentiation can be also divided in practical terms into differentiation by task, by the support that someone might get in terms of the materials used. So you might be teaching, for example, 
equivalent fractions and you provide a times table grid to a child that is not uh, fluent in their times table so they can still engage with the core learning for that lesson. There you can differentiate by adult or peer support, by pace, by simply the expectation of how much time um, someone will need to understand something or to complete an activity of some form. And you can differentiate by outcome. Um, with a piece of writing, you might simply um, give a task that is open-ended enough that you can have different expectations for what you will expect different children to produce. And I would say one that I don't think is discussed enough when people talk about differentiation, but the idea of different representations or different explanations that feed into what children already know. So that's kind of how I would sum up differentiation. But really, it comes back to this central idea of tailoring teaching to meet the different needs of learners. Yeah, I mean, there's very little to disagree with what Chris has said in terms of differentiation there. Absolutely. Um, I think what's quite interesting is, as I say, um, the idea of differentiation by outcome is always quite an interesting one. I know, for example, when Ofsted released, um, or before they released the new inspection framework, they released their evidence that they used to support the framework. And there's a tiny little paragraph there on differentiation, which says, um, through providing differentiated teaching activities or resources has generally not been shown to have much impact on people's attainment. They then quote a, a meta-analysis by Shireen Amboska on school effectiveness research. And they state, I can't say that I've read the original source um, in any way, but they say that there was a very weak relationship with pupil outcome. And they also then go on to quote um, Hattie's work, Visible Learning, which I'm sure um, listeners are probably more familiar with, but I think it was kind of interesting there that they say it's not effective. However, in terms of the differentiating of teaching activities or resources. And again, I'm not sure how much I agree, because like Chris said, I kind of think differentiation, I just think it's responsive, it can be thought of as, as responsive teaching in a different way. You notice that child A doesn't get whatever concept you're teaching. Um, so you either may have thought of additional explanations, different metaphors, different analogies to use, or that's where you kind of think, oh, I'm going to actually have to think of my feet here, think of something else, which I'm sure, you know, we've all had to do in our classrooms. And I kind of think, you know, that is differentiation because you are reacting in, to what you're seeing in front of you in the hope that through that, they then achieve whatever learning goal you've set out at, at the outset. Whenever we set out to define differentiation, the only thing that came to my head was that we need to consign the word differentiation to the Education Room 101 <laughs> because it's mutated so much over an extended period of time that actually it has very little utility in education discourse. And I think what we're going to go on to talk about is much more practical, much more useful, but to call it differentiation doesn't help anybody. So I think on that note, we could probably go into, well, why might the word differentiation be so controversial? You know, what went wrong? Because it sounds like an eminently sensible idea. What happened? 
I've got no obviously research to back up any of this. This is mere, merely pure speculation, but I imagine where it first went wrong was probably early thousands where learning styles were a thing where there was that expectation that you kind of worked out whether your child was a visual learner, a kinesthetic learner, or interpretive dance learner, whatever kind of crazy learning styles that were out there at the time. And so there was this idea, expectation, because I'm speaking from, I'm speaking from experience here where, you know, it was written on your lesson plans and you had three boxes. What are you going to do for your visuals, your, your kinesthetics? And so obviously you'd have to differentiate your task by the perceived learned, preferred learning style of that student. And I think from there, because obviously that was something that was expected to be seen and because it was expected in terms of the observer, it was a very clear thing that was happening. I then think that led us down the path where differentiation had to be something that was very explicit, that had to be seen in the lesson or um, being seen through a book look, for example. And I think rather it being, as we've kind of discussed earlier, that responsiveness to the learners that we have in front of us. Child A doesn't get the first explanation, so I will try another explanation. Now, unless the person observing you um, notices and is aware of that, they may then take those books, assuming that they have this perhaps outdated idea of differentiation where it is, as I've just discussed, and they would then say, great, but where's the differentiation in that? And I think that was the beginning of the bastardization of the word differentiation. But I'd say that's purely speculative and nothing to back that up whatsoever. So I'd be interested in anyone else's thoughts on where they think it happened. Well, I, as soon as you started talking about the impact of observers, um, I was nodding along vigorously. I, again, I, this is just from my personal experience. So that pinch of salt aside, the, what I saw over and over again in different schools was problems occurring relating to differentiation because of some form of toxic accountability. And I don't necessarily mean a blaming senior leaders thing um, or even necessarily a blaming Ofsted thing, but definitely accountability came into the equation, at least from the start of my time in the profession, it was still, so this is 2006, 2007 ish, it was still relatively nuanced, at least my experience of it. And then over time, I saw it warp into the simplest, most visible, as you say, most explicit versions that you can imagine. It wasn't about whether you were supporting the needs of your students, it was about whether you were visibly doing differentiation, regardless of the outcome. It wasn't about outcomes anymore. It was about whether you could show that you were doing a specific thing. So this led to planning where you would have five boxes on it, where it said VLA, LA, MA, et cetera. 
and without getting into a discussion about the way that the word ability has been to use your word bastardized over the years that is obviously not the best practice in the world to have defined in advance who is not going to understand aspects of the learning make like I say making those decisions in advance and then effectively leaving those children's names in those boxes for the rest of the year perhaps until you gave them a test and someone moved up oh they're ma now that stuff was rife it was it was common to every um, school that i worked in as a teacher and as a teaching assistant and it got worse over time what's interesting is the way that the idea of differentiation got embedded purely as relating to difficulty so differentiation meant i will create things that are of varying degrees of difficulty which doesn't necessarily have to be the case you could have two children that perhaps are going to understand the same concept through different explanations or different representations without any concept of their in the moment capability being involved with it at all. Um, so I think you're spot on with the idea of the need to see it, the observe, observation of it leading to the worst aspects of it. It led to some weird stuff as well, like in particular, the weakest students ending up with often with the least practice in the thing that you wanted them to achieve. You would be doing a write a lesson in writing and you would have the weakest writers in the room finish the lesson not having picked up a pen because you you needed to show that they could use a conjunction and you know that you didn't want them to to struggle with the aspects of writing that they actually struggled with. I think I think you've hit the nail on the head. I reckon there's quite a few people who have never experienced this world who are listening and it's probably worth putting a point of record down for the ages so that we never return to it because when I started around about the same time as yourself Chris we had to have five or six different activities on the go depending on where the pupils have been assessed so you in, in one class you could have pupils working on P levels which was sort of your pre-national curriculum level and then all the way up to level four level five and everything in between and you would have something completely different going on all the time and it took hours to sort that kind of thing you know it, it literally in work at seven leaving work at six and most of your time was spent preparing resources in in terms of opportunity cost i'm struggling to think of something that wasted so much teacher time and was expected, you know, because I think we've sort of tiptoed around, you know, the accountability issue, but schools were measured based on how effectively they did this. And they were expected to have plans when they had, when their lessons were being observed. And on those plans, you would need to show the distinction between each of the individual groups in your class. And, you know, not only was it a massive waste of time, but I reckon we lost quite a lot of teachers because of it. It was either experienced teachers who thought, well, actually, no, this is a lot of nonsense. You know, we'll, we'll just say, no, I'm done. I'm leaving. And new teachers, as we know, burn out within the first five years. So it, it, it amazes me how it was able to go on for so long. Because without anything that can attest to the efficacy of such practice, it became part and parcel of what schools did for the best part of a decade, I think. And so in terms of why is it controversial, 
I think it had a massively detrimental effect on both our ability as an education system to provide a high quality education for all pupils because we don't have enough teachers and anyone who might be sort of in there in the, you know those those kind of teachers we want to attract to the profession are going to look at it and go well no i don't want to spend 70 80 hours a week planning and cutting things out so you know what went wrong i think it's impossible to say i think neil you're onto something within your sort of line of thinking but i think the most important thing to do is to appreciate that something went badly wrong and hope that we never go back there again what's interesting there as well is you um you mentioned a couple of times about how, how could this possibly have happened and what i find fascinating is the how uh, emotive a subject something like setting is in um and arguably for good reason at the primary phase and yet differentiation so often ended up with something that as far as the children were concerned was just exactly the same it was if it if it even if it wasn't the case that it would be well there's the the children, there's the triangles table and there's the squares table and they all know they're getting different work. I mean, I don't think the, the ethical issues that people have with setting are down to the fact that children are necessarily in a different room. It's the, the impact on a child's sense of self and on their sense of themselves as learners in particular that, people, that bothers people about the idea of setting or streaming. And yet differentiation, which de facto did the same thing in children's minds, just sailed completely under the radar seemingly for a considerable period of time. I think the scary thing is that, and I'd add to you what you're saying there, Kieran, is there's a danger of a bubble here in that we're talking about this stuff in the past tense. Whereas I strongly suspect that we are that there are many schools around the country right now that are expecting their teachers for every lesson to provide three-way task-based differentiation. And if they are not, then they are failing in some form. They're failing their students. This isn't to say that it's never the case that you should provide different children in your room with different tasks to meet their particular learning needs. Of course you could. And of course, sometimes you should. Um, it's just to make the point that to have it as mandatory and to have decided in advance always what every child in your room is capable of before a lesson begins is in obviously incredibly limiting. I'd just like to briefly mention the idea of lethal mutations because you can argue that this is all a lethal mutation of the initial idea of differentiation, which as I say, was just about tailoring learning to meet different students' needs. But it's interesting that we ended up with kind of meta lethal mutations, so lethal mutations of lethal mutations, because schools started to notice that five, three or five way differentiation by task was limiting for pupils. And so rather than look at the issue at source and change that, what they did was start to invent things like challenge by choice, whereby there would still be three or five way differentiation but now you would be leaving the decision about the most appropriate learning task for a child to develop up to a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old. And again, this isn't to cast aspersions on the idea that children should sometimes have some a sense of choice to empower them as learners. Again, in context and under certain circumstances, I think that's a really powerful thing. But as a daily go-to, you know, if, if your seven-year-old is deciding what learning task they're doing in maths most days of the year, then, and, and you think that's an acceptable thing, 
then that probably doesn't speak very kindly as to what your senior leaders think of your abilities as a teacher to choose learning tasks for your students, to match learning tasks to the needs of your students. So yeah, if you happen to be someone listening who is still differentiating three or five ways, whatever it might be, by task on a daily basis, and there's bound to be someone, then perhaps um, a, a gentle conversation with the senior leaders in your school is in order. And then just to take that last point uh, one step further, not only were we then expected to get seven, eight, nine-year-olds to choose their own learning, but we were to to make it engaging. We were then to have having to frame that through uh, a Nando's menu where they could decide their particular flavour of uh, <laughs> spice that they wanted with their learning. And obviously- Chili the challenge. The, the oh, that's, that takes me back. <laughs> the hotter the hotter the chili the hotter they wanted that sauce the uh yeah the harder the work proceed which is just yeah i think with i think there's plenty of research out there that kind of demonstrates that adult you know college students university students are fallible and they'll kind of choose the shortcuts i think we've you know probably biologically we're hardwired probably say with Daniel Willingham, our brains don't like to think. We're probably hardwired to take the, you know, the easy route and show, you know, that we've done something. So, you know, you had those that you could do something a bit more challenging in the class. They were just choosing the weakest one. And depending on, you know, your classroom management, it might be, you know, the end of the lesson or the end of the day when you mark those books, because obviously this was at the time as well, where visible marking was also a massive thing. And you had these two absolute goliaths of workload all kind of converging at the same point and you'd get to that that book that one kid who you know you could push on and then yeah they've just done 70 questions that were just at the you know real basic level and you just think what a wasted learning opportunity for that child the thing you mentioned there about chili challenge that's reminded me of a couple of things I talked about a meta-lethal mutation. There was also a meta-meta-lethal mutation because the Chile Challenge in a school I worked at effectively started to hide the difficulty of the different challenges because they didn't want children to feel like they had been limited in what they were doing. So you ended up with this weird situation where children would be saying to you, the teacher, oh, which one's the most difficult one? Because I'm, you know, I'm struggling with this. And you're kind of not sure whether to tell them or not. It was very weird. And on top of that, I remember a CPD session where I was probably getting towards the end of my tether with this stuff, where I asked, well, what happens if a child picks the a, a task that I believe is inappropriate for them? Um, and they said, oh, well, you know what it's like. You can nudge them in the right direction. Well, why can't I just give them the correct task in the first place? Or just design a task that all, if not, well, the vast majority, if not all of the children can access and, and engage with um, at the same time, rather than you know, splitting it several ways, which reminds me of one other thing. I remember um, this was a little bit before Chili Challenge and all this sort of stuff. I was in a habit of creating questions in mathematics whereby without making it explicit, I knew in the back of my mind that if all of the children were comfortable with say the first seven or eight questions, I was pretty happy. And the questions that proceeded from that, 
perhaps stretched them a little bit further or brought in other elements of mathematics. And so effectively, in, in my mind, I thought, yeah, if the children are coping with questions seven to eight, then I feel like they've pretty much grasped what I want them to grasp for today. Not necessarily learned it, of course, but they've, they've, they've grasped it. They've started to make connections. But the task itself was designed to provide that stretch for those that are, you know, that were ready for it. And I was observed in a lesson doing that. And they insisted that what I do in the next lesson is print that out instead of writing it on a board, put it onto three separate sheets, but have one sheet where I only had questions one to eight, and then another sheet where I had the same list of seven, like seven or eight questions, and then a few more, and then the same questions, but up to all like 15 or 20 or whatever there were. So instead of children just progressing down the list, they I could I had a visible way of showing that oh no this is the sheet for the children that struggle and this is the sheet for the children who don't even though it was still the same list of questions in effect which speaks to what you were talking about um when it comes to the unfortunate way that observers and accountability mutated all of these all of these ideas and as Kieran said it was a planning nightmare I don't know if this is a controversial opinion but I think the introduction of the 2014 curriculum and the removal of levels forced us towards thinking really deeply about what it is we were about in schools and how best we could teach. And I know that it was, it was pretty unpopular at the time, but I think if we still had levels today, I'm not convinced we wouldn't have shaken off. You know, I know we haven't shaken it off in all instances, but at least begun to shake off the shackles of old school differentiation. Yeah, I think I remember Paul, like, you know, having to date something three times before you could actually t highlight it off in the, you could say they've actually done it. So there you were before you went into a performance management meeting or whatever, just going back through perhaps one or even two exercise books, being like, right, I'm gonna just write a date somewhere that relatively shows that, but I agree, yeah, enjoyed life without levels i just think giving us another or teachers the profession maybe another year or two just to actually get to grips and put something decent because i think what we have now is effectively levels under a different name and i think it was a great opportunity for the profession but i think because of the accountability structures that were still there and i can totally appreciate the uh, point of view of many head teachers at the time where it was that kind of top level accountability by Ofsted and all about data they just needed something quickly so I think we did effectively just change levels to four working below four working at four uh, working above and then perhaps if you really wanted to show enough progress you'd then break that down so four working at plus or four working at minus and you know your kids would never reach mastery of something before the uh they just wouldn't be allowed to like it'd be you couldn't say they've mastered something before you know summer two otherwise where 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 could they possibly go where could we show that progress it was a yeah an interesting time but i think we're maybe digressing slightly from there i think i think the key point to make um going back to kind of the central controversy if you like about differentiation is the impact it had on workload as has been discussed also changed what teachers thought teaching was in the lesson and this links back to observations as well 
teachers were often in a situation when it came to task-based differentiation where they found themselves trying to make a lesson go smoothly. In other words, finding the exact tasks that you could give to children so that they struggled the exactly the right amount in order for the lesson to look great to someone from the outside, to feel like it was a really good lesson. And experience has suggested to me that the lessons actually that don't feel that smooth, that feel a bit clunky, where I have to change direction, where I have to bring in a new representation, are actually the ones arguably where the most progress, in inverted commas, is made. So in, in other words, I think one of the worst things about differentiation, or at least as it was has come to be considered, is that it made teachers think that if a lesson wasn't perfectly smooth, that they hadn't planned it right. They hadn't given the children easy enough tasks. And I think that's really detrimental to both the teachers and to student learning over the long term. The next question is, should we differentiate? But I think as we're con confining it to room 101, we should probably say, or set some parameters for what we mean when we say what we should do, if that makes sense. So if I'm to take what you guys have said so far, we essentially have the curriculum as a progression model. And the next step is what pupils don't know about or to do. We focus our attention on supporting pupils in learning what we want them to learn. For those who require more time or scaffold, we provide it. And for those who require more challenge or can go deeper, we provide it. Is there anything else you guys would like to add to that? I think that's a, a perfectly viable way of looking at things. And I totally agree with it. I think just something to add to that, just as a kind of practical um, a bit of understanding is that nine times out of 10, when you feel the need to differentiate, when you find a, a student or a group of students are struggling with something um, in a way that others in the class aren't, or where you find a student that is already has already seemed to have grasped the content and is ready to take things a bit deeper, it comes back to prior understanding. It's that the, the prerequisite knowledge, skills, understanding, whatever you want to call it, that they needed for that lesson, they didn't have before that lesson began. So creating a task that allows them to access the lesson doesn't often get to the nub of the issue, which is oh, there's this, there's this bit of prior understanding that they don't have. And thinking about the way you described differentiation as such there, Kieran, that's the, the thing that should always be in the back of teachers' minds. What's the prior understanding that is holding back children or that might hold back children? How can I assess to begin with to check they, um, whether they have it or not? And then how can I put that in place for those that don't have it? And on occasion, I think it's worth noting, when we talk about task-based stuff on occasion it might be worthwhile for certain students to say well while I'm teaching this thing actually your focus is mostly going to be on this crucial bit of prior understanding that will lead you to the thing that I'm talking about here with the majority of the class I think that yeah that's important to say you know I probably 
in describing the curriculum as a progression assumed that and I, and I shouldn't oh. have and I shouldn't have assumed it no no I think it was absolutely implied in what you said I just wanted to you know pontificate no I think people will you know for instance if they're coming to this from a complete novice standpoint people will appreciate that distinction you know because it's very easy for me because I've got this map of mathematics in my head and I'm always talking as if every subject is a hierarchical subject and you know you can't go on without doing the prerequisites and so I think I think it'd be really helpful I like to think that that's what I bring to the podcast generally when you just on those occasions when you are taking your expertise for granted I'm able to bring in that novice perspective then the question is should we yes (laughs) by the definition that I used at the start and the better definition that you used just then yeah absolutely and I guess the question is beyond that assuming yes what ways are most likely to be conducive to children learning without making ridiculous workload uh, problems for teachers i think it's one of those ones where you have to and this is where perhaps as primary we're not as good as it at it as perhaps some of our secondary colleagues is seeing differentiation as a generic add-on to our pedagogy. I think if we're talking about differentiation as um, described at the beginning and as uh, Kieran has said, I think then the only way that we can ensure we are differentiating well is actually having a good grasp of the subjects as subjects within themselves. I think there perhaps are a few generic things that we could do, things such as knowing um, at point C, I'm going to ask child A this particular question because um, I know that's a, perhaps a, a hinge point in the lesson where before I set them off and I know from, I know this kid well, so I think, you know, I want to make sure that he can do it. Otherwise, he will just sit there and just do nothing until I eventually 10 minutes later get around to him. But I think more than that, I think we need to kind of think about subjects specifically, what can we actually do to help? So obviously representation selection in maths, to know if a child is struggling on a particular concept, the teacher themselves need to know which representations are best to bring about whatever particular thinking of mathematics they want to bring about. English, I think then you've got to really kind of think about, okay, so perhaps if we're at the planning phase of a story, then perhaps I am going to provide some sort of um, structure to help internalize certain plot sequences, whatever it is that you might have been teaching them at that time. So I think it's one of those ones where, you know, we really have to think about the subject disciplines themselves and not rely on, as maybe perhaps we have done in the past, um, seeing differentiation as just a, a generic pedagogy that we can kind of shoehorn into every lesson under the sun so i think that's where again as you've said uh, chris there might be times where yeah do you know what you do need to give someone something completely different and as matt said mentioned you know hierarchical subjects in history you know do they really need a different worksheet probably not but there are probably things that we can do to help them achieve whatever it is that we want them to achieve in that lesson um, but to do that, we need to know the history really well and the, as a subject and the discipline 
rather than just relying on generic pedagogies or seeing differentiation as a generic pedagogy that can just be shoehorned into any subject. A lot of this comes to back to task design as well. So it is, if you've got in the back of your mind, a group of students that you consider to be struggling and a group of students you consider to be ready to understand something before the lesson begins, it is a relatively easy thing to give them each different tasks, for example. Compare that to something that I consider to be a lot more expert that takes a great deal more time and experience and just exposure to really good examples. Task design that allows children to access it to different extents, uh, be it goal-free problems um, is another example in mathematics and can be used elsewhere. In short, I think there's an element in which differentiation doesn't have to be this thing that where you automatically start to think about what each child individually name by name might need it can just be something where you start to think well i know that there are on, on this area um a range of background knowledge um levels so i need to think exactly about how i'm going to use a task that more can uh, more of the children if not all of the children can then access and, and learn from and i don't think this is something that i because of differentiation or because of the, the the perils of differentiation that we've talked about earlier, I don't think it's something that I experienced a lot or learned a great deal of in the first half of my career. One thing I noticed at the very start was your sort of little exposition on where you were coming from, matched up almost exactly with what Elliot Morgan described in terms of task design. You know, he was talking about things like process and product. So if you go back to, what is it, season one, episode five, I think you'll notice a lot of overlap about how he sets his parameters and what you said at the start. And that really stands out to me in terms of, with task design, you've got your pedagogic principles and you apply them before you decide how the task will look, I think. And I suppose it depends on your priorities in each situation and like you say it's it's entirely possible to design a task that all pupils can access but some pupils can excel in you know i'm thinking about key stage two or key stage one all pupils can count you know normally by the end of year two but can they be as flexible with number as we want them to be and you could design a task that would establish a distinction between the two so I think that's a really important way of looking at it. And then when, when Neil's talking about it's not just an add-on, if I think back to our episode on feedback, I think one of the reasons why a lot of schools are reticent to get rid of written feedback completely is because they're wondering, well, what do we put in place that will still give us effective feedback? And I think we need to be considering what it is we have in place that will allow all our pupils to excel regardless of starting point. So really interesting chat. I think we probably only scratched the surface and we'll maybe put a pin in this one to come back to. But all that's left to say is thank you very much, Chris and Neil, for joining me today. Until next time, thanks for listening.